This is Pause for Thought, a podcast brought to you by Animal Therapies Limited. Dr. Aubrey Fine is one of the world's most experienced practitioners in the field of animal-assisted therapy. A trained psychologist of many years, he has specialised in treating children with ADHD and learning difficulties, incorporating animals into his therapy sessions long before it became popular. Dr. Fine is an emeritus professor at the University of California, the author of several books and many awards. In February 2023, he will fly to Australia to deliver the keynote address at the ATL National Conference, titled Bridging Science with Practice, as well as a second session on protecting animal welfare. Dr. Fine joins us via Zoom from California. Dr. Aubrey Fine, welcome to Pause for Thought today, all the way from California. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting. You have worked in the field of animal-assisted therapy for around 50 years now, which makes you one of the most qualified people in the sector internationally. Was there a pivotal moment as a young psychologist when you realized that animals could be an asset in therapy? You know, it's a great question, and maybe I'll walk you back in like almost like in a time capsule of 50 years ago to kind of give you an idea of, of one when I was a little boy growing up in Canada, I was afraid of animals. Uh, my mom didn't like them. and We didn't have pets. But something changed. And, and um, in 19, it would have been the end of 72, the beginning of 73, I got my first pet. And she was a little gerbil. I, I always give credit to her because at that time I was doing my undergraduate work in, in, in Canada. And I designed a social skill training program for the Quebec Association for Learning Disabilities. Those days, learning disabilities was a broad term. It would have been kids that had neurodevelopmental disorders, pretty large and spectrum of choices. But one day I decided in the cold of Canadian winter to actually bring my little buddy, and her name was Sasha, to a program. I was greeted by lots of children and um, some of the youngsters came to me and said, you know, what kind of animal is that? And and then other youngsters came by maybe and said, you know, why was I bringing this animal in this cage in the cold of Canadian winter? But there was one boy that was really the first that was going to ask me this question many times that day. He said, could I hold her? And, you know, it's really funny. I never thought about any of these things. I just thought I was going to bring my little friend as a share. So I looked at the young boy and said to him, we'll call him Alan. I said, Alan, you know, why don't you sit down? And um, if you cross your leg and promise me you won't move, I'm going to get you to put your palms next to your chest and I'll place Sasha in your palms. But again, you can't move because I want to make sure that she feels comfortable. And he looked at me with the big eyes and said, sure. So I did that. And within the first few moments, Sasha became very comfortable and she started to meander on his tummy and looked at him and the boy's eyes just beamed. And you know, I'll tell you something. I don't remember exactly what it was like 50 years ago. I don't know all the details today, but I, I can't tell you that there was a moment that the boy looked at me and instantly said, you see, I promise you I wouldn't move. And it was that beginning that really shaped not only my life professionally, but shaped my life very personally. And you have to understand, this is 1973, way before science is demonstrating what many humans know today, that animals are good for our well-being. And so serendipitously, I, I began to discover, one, the unconditional acceptance of an animal and how that animal can act as, as a social lubricant to help me support 
my work, but really how the animals in my life in general were wonderful gifts. So that must have been a really special moment with Sasha. What is it at the core of the animal-human relationship that sparks that connection that is just so hard to describe? You know, it's a great word. And and I think the American Humane Society, when they talk about a reciprocal relationship, that's mutual. And, you know, scientists get really anxious when you use a four-letter word called love, but it's a connection. In my early years, of course, I had many animals that I worked alongside with. And not all animals connected with every child that I worked with, but in many cases, there was an animal that I had that a child said, wow, I really, really like Ketsy or Mystic or Magic or BJ. So in essence, it's it's this unique attraction. I, I do think that in many ways, there are lots of reasons why people turn to animals. But I do believe that there has to be a connection. And, and there are lots of ingredients to this. You know, sometimes the cold nose, warm heart of a, of a dog can open up the world. And, and it's that evolving relationship. It's the trust. It's the unconditional uh, connection. It's the physical proximity that you can hold a being and hug them. Animals, often we talk to them. They, they may not talk back to us, but yet we hear or believe that they're listening. And dogs are wonderful body readers. You know what I mean? One of the, 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 the gifts through the years of domestication has been that dogs are very attuned to humans. And that was one of the reasons we became much more attached to them. And so when doing that, of course, you can see dogs when you're around them. Like my therapy dogs, for example, if you begin to become emotional, they'll come to you. They'll put their head on your lap. They'll look in your eyes. So your work has mainly focused or been involved with with children with learning difficulties and ADHD and developmental difficulties. Is it a guarantee that an animal will always make a breakthrough with children, regardless of the animal? Or is that not necessarily so? And do some animals, as you've alluded to, work better than others? Two good questions. So we'll take it then we'll dissect the questions. One, I, I can answer this not only with children, because I have worked with the elderly. And, and of course, when I work with children, I work with their moms and dads as, as well. Um, is there a guarantee? I love that line, you know, and, and, and there isn't a guarantee. Years and years and years ago, I had a book company that asked, would I write a book called The Prescription of Animal-Assisted Therapy? And they wanted me to give this prescription that I could do. And, and I said, that's that's not the way this works. It really relates to a connection. And and then, of course, if we're really doing animal-assisted therapy, um, I've learned to almost become like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers with my therapy animals. We learn to dance seamlessly. And what I mean by that is when you work alongside a therapy animal, you begin to know each other and you work as a team. And so some children may not connect, some adults may not connect with animals Sometimes you have to be very cautious of the work you do because you don't want to lose focus of the fact that you're doing a certain work together. And and I don't want kids to hide behind the animals. They don't really physically behind. But if we're spending more time talking about what the animal does or likes, you may not get to the core of what you're trying to work on. But for sure, at the beginning of this field, the early pioneers, including maybe myself, we're very attracted to the fact that the animals could act as a social catalyst to engagement 
you know, what's it like when you come into a therapist's office and a golden retriever meets you at the door? Well, that's different. And what's it like when you come back and you're you're feeling emotional and, and an animal comes towards you in an affectionate way for comforting? So I, I think that there really is no guarantee. And that's something that we have to understand. But I look at animal assisted services as a complementary form of therapy. So that means I've learned to use a variety of approaches with the clients that I work with. And of course, one of the most enriching that I spent a large part of my life doing is working alongside animals. And this is not fun and games for the animal. And we need to put the animal's welfare and well-being as pinnacle. And, and so the question you asked, the second part, in, which is, do all animals do this just naturally? I have to preface this by saying that I've had wonderful, wonderful companion animals in my life that I adored, but they didn't work with me as therapy animals. And that was okay. They were great at what they did. And I appreciated all of their connections. So one of the things that we talk about is how you can select a therapy animal. You know, when you're really looking at it, key ingredients are the affiliative nature of the animal. The animal meaning desire to be with other humans and, and to interact that they'd rather do that than play with the ball or another dog. Of course, you still have to have consistent, reliable behavior so that the animal is well trained to do this work. So that's part one of that equation. But the thing that we talk a lot about more today, and it's interesting, but I've been talking about this for years, is you really want to find the right dog for the right job because not all therapy animals can do the things that maybe are required of the task. And sometimes people don't have the luxury and they'll they'll say, you know, I have a therapy dog and I'm going to work with seniors, I'm going to work with children. And sometimes that doesn't work. We have to be able to kind of look at what the animal is expected to do and then if you're working in a, in a larger setting, of course, you can maybe look around and see if you can find a therapy animal that meets that standard. But it's important to realize that a good fit is important. And so in my work, again, going back early in my career, where I had many more therapy animals than I do now that I'm, you know, that I've retired is the fact that, you know, for certain children, when they came, I knew which animal I was going to bring along. And each of them had their own gifts and talents that they shared. But for sure, in all the work that we're going to talk about, it is super critical to recognize the need of the therapy animal to do this job well. And one way of looking at it is when you talk about animal welfare, Making sure the animal's well-being is pinnacle also will assure you'll have a better service to provide because if we're taking care of the triangle, we're taking care of the your client, we're making sure the person that's doing the work is good. But equally as important is that we're making sure that the animal feels safe and comfortable and is vibrant. Those conditions enrich that working world. I want to ask you, do you think ADHD and anxiety, other problems we're seeing in children, are they more common today or are we just recognizing the symptoms more clearly? Good question. You know, that when I began my career, like when I said the Quebec Association with Children with Learning Disabilities, in the early 1970s, of course, um, what we call today ADHD would have been called maybe children that were hyperactive. Other terms were used, like when we're talking about learning disabilities, minimal brain dysfunction. So I think that one, the prevalence of some of these conditions is because of our more of our, our awareness. We're becoming more conscious 
of neurodiversity, if I could use that word. On the other hand, not every child that's inattentive and not every child that's a little bit active has ADHD. Not all children that are a little bit nervous have anxiety disorders. Sometimes children that lack social savoir-faire. I think that one of the concerns is the over-diagnosis of certain disorders. But again, just like when we're talking about animal-assisted therapy, animal-assisted services, um, I always give credibility to the people that are doing the diagnostic work. If you really are trained to diagnose these things effectively and not be liberal in over-diagnosing, saying, oh, yeah, yeah, this is ADHD or this is autism, then, in fact, we are more accurate. And, you know, it's really funny. In my life, I may be liberal in a lot of things, but but when I work with children, I'm really conservative. I really want to make sure that I'm using the best practice approaches. I want to look at if I'm doing a diagnostic impression. I really want to make sure I'm accurate. And you know who taught me that, Candy? It, it was moms and dads, because I've had moms and dads that come into my office and some of them used to say to me, you know, Dr. Fine, I don't even put my makeup on when I come visit you because I know I'm, I'm sometimes going to start to cry. And so I learned to listen to the moms, dads, the children I work with, so I can accurately help support them. And even if I diagnose a child with ADHD, for example, I spend as much time trying to demystify to the family what that means, because having ADHD doesn't mean you can't. Having ADHD means that we may have to make adjustments. Some people do better because ADHD is a lifelong condition. But I have had people with ADHD that, of course, are very successful adults today. And so one of the things that I help kids learn is to demystify, to declutter what they think it is and understand exactly what we're dealing with. But then look at the fact that you can learn to live with ADHD and learn to develop compensatory strategies that will help you become successful. Animal-assisted therapy is now acknowledged as a legitimate practice worldwide, but there still seems to be a gap between anecdotal or or claim benefits and sound evidence-based research. What needs to happen for that gap to close? Good question. You know, in fact, that's one of the talks that I'm going to give at, at the conference, and I'm excited about doing that. You know, in our conversation when we started, I said that one of the things that's interesting is that science is catching up with what most humans have felt for years, that animals are good for your well-being. That being said, the the science behind human-animal interactions, when you think about it, really began with the work of Erica Friedman in the late 70s and the early 80s, where they captured the fact that being around a dog could change your respiration, breathing, and heart rate. And, you know, they did some research first following people that lived um, after they had a heart attack and saw what the roles that pets provided them. But then the research really blossomed. We started off looking at the fact that when you were with an animal that you liked and felt comfortable with, your heart rate went down. That research grew. And then, of course, now we have research that looks at cortisol changes, that when you're with an animal that you're comfortable with, I always use that word comfortable with, your stress hormone cortisol will be reduced. And I have to say, what's fascinating, it doesn't only happen to the human, it happens to the animal. I use the word dog 
because that was what the early work was, but it's with all species of animals. So their work on that changed, right? And then all of a sudden, not only are we looking at cortisol changes in heart rate and variable heart rate, but now people are doing more neurological kinds of research. So you're looking at like the neurotransmitter oxytocin. I'll pick that one first, which is like that love hormone, that love transmitter. Well, research shows that when you're really connected, you're going to see an increase in oxytocin. That original research began in South Africa in 2000, 2001. We're more sophisticated now in learning how to collect what we need for uh, that data enrichment. But uh, one of the research scientists in Japan, actually, um, I think this was about 2015, did some research that showed that when you gaze into an animal's eyes, when you look into the eyes of someone you love, right, the oxytocin goes higher. And so uh, you've always heard the line that the eyes were the windows to your soul. Well, there could be a truth to that. And even now, when you look at some of the old research by Bowlby and Ainsworth on attachment theory, because again, oxytocin, just picking on that one, is the highest at when a woman gives birth. And it also gets high during the period when, when moms breastfeed their infants. But now when you think about it, when you're breastfeeding, often you're looking at the infant. And so often when I talk to people and, and about their connection with animals, we find that, uh, that, they, that, that the staring or the looking into the eyes. But to answer your question even more specifically, one of the reasons research has not caught up to what some of us believe, and, and that's where the anecdotal comments have come in, is that one, research is not funded as well as it needs to. And so what, what occurs is the fact that since the early 2000s, organizations like Waltham have partnered with organizations like the National Institute of Health in the United States, where now we're seeing research studies that are more well-funded, and therefore you're having scientists that have the resources to conduct proper research, like research that has randomized controlled trials, larger samples looking at longitudinal changes. So the tragedy is that to do good research, you have to have resources. If I can add one other little comment, I know I'm going to go longer on this, is as the field has become more sophisticated, we're beginning to realize that can we develop best practice approaches with different special populations? Of course, we need research to demonstrate that. But what once began when I started in, in, in 73, sort of informally, is now uh, there are people that are developing protocols maybe specifically for adults with um, dementia or children that have autism. And again, these protocols basically would share if we, we did research and demonstrated efficacy, if those research studies could be replicated, then we have the ability to say what we're doing is, is something that's valuable. When you look at a meta-analysis, the research that we're finding today is utilizing more richer research designs that are allowing us to get more interpretation that's more credible. What I want to ask you, Aubrey, how do you see the sector developing in the next, say, 10 years? And what do we have to do to measure its effectiveness? Again, a, a very good question. Where do we see ourselves going in 10 years? Well, 
one one of the things that that I'm, I'm seeing in the United States is more of what I call the professionalization of animal assisted services that we're looking at the competencies that are necessary for clinical people to do this work that it isn't just about bringing your your dog to work for the day but it's really understanding how you do this work and how, of course, as we've been talking, um, how are you becoming more conscious and cognizant of the animals you work alongside with? For example, in the United States, we're seeing competency tests being developed. There's a, a new organization called the AAAIP, and basically uh, they now have a, a new national exam that, that they developed to address are people aware? So I think for the future, we need to have people that really do what they say they're going to do. And I think quality and competence are really important to me. I want to make sure that the animals are kept in a safe way. I want to make sure that what we're doing is best practice. So we, we need to learn from each other. I think as the field moves within the next 10 years, I'm hopeful that one, we're going to see more research demonstrating evidence-based, but not only talking about animal-assisted interventions, but really I want to make sure that the services that we provide are really sound. And I think that sometimes our results from research even may be misconstrued or over-sensationalized. So we need to make sure that doesn't occur. The other area that, that we could just bring up that I think is really very relevant is how public policy has to be influenced here. It's easy for me and you to chat because you're part of what I would say the choir. But what about people that are policy people that don't understand all of this? How do we influence their minds so that they can be gatekeepers that can open the world to better opportunities? And we're not only talking about animal-assisted services, but we could be talking about animals in the community. And how do we develop environments that are human-animal friendly? Public policy is really important. We need to be able to influence stakeholders that can open up more opportunities. That's where the balance of research comes in, because I, I, I know we all love the anecdotal stories. But on the other hand, we recognize that evidence is going to help propel this field into the next decade or decades to come. Aubrey, we really look forward to seeing you and meeting you in Brisbane in February 2023 for our Animal Therapies Limited conference. Thank you so much for joining us on Pause for Thought today. Mm-hmm.